Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates, and here we are again, taking a stroll down the highways and byways, the country lanes of the counterculture. Now, if you take a walk down those uh, British country lanes in search of counterculture, you meet some strange, odd characters, sometimes forgotten characters, and that's what we love here at the Bureau. And the subject of today's broadcast is one such, the mysterious, let's say, rogue archaeologist and mysteries writer T.C. Lethbridge. Not a well-known name these days, but somebody who was influential in the counterculture in terms of alternative archaeology, dowsing, the uses of pendulums, intuitive ways of perceiving the world. And to guide us, to introduce us to Mr. T.C. Lethbridge, we have with us another countercultural icon. Uh, he started off life in New York City, and then as a young man was pulling the bass strings for that band Blondie, you may have heard of them, hanging out with television and uh, all sorts of other cool New York bands. But he gave up the bass um, for the pen or the typewriter and he has become one of our foremost writers on the esoteric and the occult. So I'm very pleased to welcome an old friend, Gary Lackman. Hello, Gary. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Always a pleasure. Um, now, I gave a brief introduction to you then, but who is Gary Lackman? It's probably best if <laughs> I don't butcher your bio. You'll, you'll let me do that, right? Uh, uh, well, um, Gary Lockman, I am a writer. Um, written quite a few books about um, oh, the meeting point between consciousness, um, culture, and the Western esoteric tradition. And you might say, what's that? Well, this is his counter um, tradition to the mainstream Western intellectual tradition, which at one point wasn't a counter, it was part of it, but they bifurcated about 400 years ago. <clears throat> and uh, the you know mainstream rationalist uh, scientific um, materialist view is has been dominant since then, but alongside it has been this kind of shadow tradition, which is this hermetic, uh, meaning the tradition of magic and the occult and things of that sort. So I, I over the years written quite a few books about that and biographies of um, several people that are some of the leading figures in that tradition. You're being a little bit uh, modest there, Gary. It's more than a few books, isn't it? Come on, how many is it? Oh, I guess it's several. I mean, there's this, uh, oh, many. I don't know. I think it's, it, I just, I just sent off my 23rd, put it that way. And uh, so there's 22 that are actually out. The most recent is um, um, called The Return of Holy Russia, which uh, sort, of, sort of looks at um, the history of Russia through the, that lens of this kind of counter tradition. Right. Well, and as I mentioned, you did trade in your bass guitar for the pen, the typewriter, the word processor, or computer, whatever it is that you use. And Gary, mm. we're going to talk about uh, this mysterious character, T.C. Lethbridge. As I said, not a very well-known figure these days. Maybe never was that, I suppose. But a figure, nevertheless, in that landscape mm. of the counterculture. Um, but before we get into his strange story, why don't you tell us what does counterculture mean? Oh, well, um, it used to be something about 60 years ago. Um, I think... Um I don't know. I mean, there's many. It's sort of, you know, pluralistic. There isn't one counterculture anymore. But like likened unto what I'm saying about this hermetic tradition, this kind of other or alternative uh, tradition in the West, the counterculture, um, saying it started up, I don't know, sometime in the late 50s, into the, had its 
heyday in the 60s into the 70s was um, an alternative to uh, the mainstream, um, you know, coach, bourgeois, you know, workaday, everyday uh, Protestant work ethic uh, reality. And um, I guess by the, by the, into the 80s, that, you know, broke open into a variety of different um, multicultures, I guess, you know, uh, the particular mystical side or the magical side of the counterculture, which I've, I've written about. My first book was a, um, called Turn Off Your Mind. Uh, the mystic 60s and the dark side of the age of Aquarius is uh, a, a kind of revisionist history of the 60s, but it focuses on um, how occult and mystical and magical ideas dominated the popular culture in the 1960s into the early 70s. But it kind of, uh, that itself broke down into different things by the by the mid-70s where you have kind of the rock hot and roll as i call it in the kind of heavy metal world and um and then you have kind of what uh, the beginning of what became the new age in the 80s and you know today it's you know the mind body spirit it's a whole industry out there so there there isn't one counterculture anymore i would say in terms of a kind of popular culture there's a variety of different kind of subcultures that are all uh, proliferating um, rather than one kind of opposition to, to the mainstream. Yeah, that's interesting, the idea that uh, counterculture sort of transformed itself into multiculture or in, and into subculture. Um, but I've got this idea about counterculture, which is that there's always been a counterculture whenever there's been a culture. It's sort of a bit like mm. a kind of shadow version of. Uh, when we talk about the counterculture, we mean the sort of 50s, 60s, 70s, right? Well, I mean, I guess you could push it back and people could say, well, you know, there were whoever it was in uh, before the Beats or was the existentialists or something in the 40s. And then before them, you had the, the loss or the, you know, the swinging uh, the 20s and the roaring 20s and and so on. And, um, <clears throat> you know, back to the 19th century, with you know, poets like Baudelaire. And I, I would say, though, it's sort of I mean, it all depends, you know, how how, how you want to define it. Um, uh, I mean, there's, there's always been there's always been sects that have been, you know, unorthodox and, and so on and so on. But they're not necessarily a whole kind of culture. They're a particular kind of, you know, uh, religion or, or practices that you engage in. But I, I, the reason I would focus in on, say, the 50s and the, and the 60s, obviously the 60s. I mean, I, you know, I was a kid and it was all happening out there. It was, not, it, was on, it was in TV commercials. You know, it was something that was, you know, the counterculture was quickly co-opted or the idea of the counterculture was you know, quickly co-opted by, you know, marketing, and which is very brilliant at doing anything like that. It gets a hold of it pretty quickly. Um, but, um, you know, it was something that was widespread. And um, and I guess in earlier times it was, you know, smaller. You know, you had the very, um, say, in the 1890s, you know, uh, into early uh, 19th, early 20th century, you had uh, many of the same interests that um, I've written about in the context of the counterculture, about the magic and the occult and, and the supernatural, and even like back to nature and free love and even feminism. These things were very, uh, very popular and, and um, progressive in 1890s into the early 1900s. But they weren't on, on a wide, I mean, there was a lot of people, but it wasn't sort of a whole generation sort of doing it. You know, you could still, they were still on the fringe, on the margin. And I would say today, many of the ideas that uh, and practices that we associate with the counterculture from from that this time, 50s, 60s, into the 70s, have become domesticated and, and part of you know our, our mainstream culture. So it it it's become absorbed. You know, I mean, I, I guess individuals can have a certain kind of 
counterculture, but there isn't like one particular sort of, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I belong to these guys rather than those. You know, if you smoked pot back then, you, you, uh, uh, you were belonged to the in crowd, and if you didn't, you were with the straights and that kind of thing. Very, very simplistic. Yeah, that's the sort of recurring theme, isn't it? The way that the culture sort of sucks up the counterculture, kind of absorbs it and commercialises it, particularly in the uh, advertising industry. I, I, um, I love that final episode of the series Mad Men. I don't know if you watched that. I watched some of the episodes, yeah. Like, uh, yeah but yeah. in it, the protagonist, Dan Draper, spoiler alert, by the way, if you don't know the, uh, the end, um, he, he sort of leaves it all behind in New York, the New York advertising industry, and sets mm. off across America to sort of discover himself on a motorbike. And he ends up in California mm. and in a place, I guess, like Esalen, you know, the New Age Center, and he's meditating and, mm. <clears throat> you know, doing kind of various gestalt therapy and stuff like that. But uh, uh, one day he's out on the terrace sort of meditating and... Um, and he has this bright idea, and it's uh, the Coca-Cola advert. I like to teach the world to sing, which is a kind of classic <laughs> way that the uh, uh, that whole countercultural vision was uh, right. was, was yeah. taken into commercial yeah. Yeah. America, and then yeah. uh, you know with great commercial uh, results, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it. I mean, as as far as something that was real alternative and different, it probably lasted until about you know sixty five or. I mean, there was the famous death of the hippie in nineteen. 19- uh, it was 66, um, uh, the diggers in San Francisco, they had this whole ritual uh, performance of the death of the hippie. Because by then there were, you know, tourist buses going down in, into the hate and all that kind of thing. So, I mean, but this is inevitable. And, and, and I guess in one sense, not only in that way, the counterculture, but one reason why, let's say, um, many kind of movements in the arts became so arcane and and strange and out there is that they were trying to you know sabotage any attempt to be you know enculturated into the into the mainstream but even like surrealism which was the strangest thing ever you know when it hit hit um you know the shopping bags with you know Ernst on them and stuff like that no 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 this is no denigration of Ernst or the the surrealist it's just that everything gets absorbed and it becomes part of fashion in that kind of way and so uh it's it's hard not to. I mean, I remember back in my day. Uh, you know, you mentioned when I was a musician back in back in New York, and um, and New York wasn't into the safety pins, but it eventually, you know, it just osmosis. It was happening over there. But when you could go, there's a place called Fiorucci, and this is like one of the pla- first places they were selling ripped clothing, pre-ripped clothing, and, all, and it's kind of like it's like okay, <laughs> it's sort of like that's it, you know, it's, it's kind of it's, it's over, it's, it's over now. You know, so we had Barry Kane uh, in for an episode, and Barry was the uh, punk journalist for a defunct uh, music magazine called uh, Record Mirror. All right, and he's also written a great book about the punk years, which of course, as he says, the, there was only two of them. They sort of they lasted for two years, really. The the, the, the the main punk era but of course it's been traded on ever since you know for the last 30 years or whatever it is um there's been sort of you know punk things going on uh but that was it just a very short bright burst of ferocious energy and then it was down well i mean that's that's it it's always just before the great successes happen because then you've jumped you know you made that quantum leap you're in the other orbit and it's very different and you can't you know if you want to really compete in that new world you can't really maintain the same innocence and naivete and freshness but just before i mean um again for me in new york um 75 76 just before people were getting all the record deals was when it was really exciting at cbgb because it was just a lot of stuff and every night there was a great band playing and um all the bands were different 
they all sounded dif- different. There wasn't one sound that later it became, oh, this is the punk sound or whatever. There wasn't, because the Ramones are very different than television, who is very different than Blondie and different than Talking Heads and so on and all that. So, I mean, this is this wonderful grade of time. And of course, I have nostalgia for it. You know, I was, I was still in my teens and all that. But uh, no, I, I think that was one of the, and also had the strange blend of the art, art and rock. You had the, the, the Rambo, you know, you're talking about counterculture. So Patti Smith is making all these, these homages to Rambo, you know, uh, French symbolist poet from the 19th century, and it's kind of linking up to that, and then these three chords, very simple. Uh, I mean, the thing about that time, if I can just say this, is that um, it was also around the same time that there was this great nostalgia in, in, in mainstream rock for the early 50s stuff, because everything became top-heavy with Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and Yes, and these Wagnerian bands, and people like Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis are having comebacks. And um, uh, there's a group called Sha Na Na that did all the old doo-wop stuff and all that. And it was like back to roots, and that was what was happening in New York, too. It was like simple three-chord high energy with... Um, yeah, so you were playing uh, bass for Blondie, as I mentioned, and with all those bands that you mentioned then, was there a sense that it was this kind of scene? You were part of a a community of something that was happening? No, I mean, I, everybody knew something was happening. It, just, it didn't have a name. I mean, it was New York rock, underground rock. I mean, it wasn't called punk until it was Punk Magazine came out, and then that kind of, oh, it's an easy... And then you... This is the thing, okay? It's road to success, but then everybody who could put a safety pin and pour a beer over their head, you know, was a punk. <laughs> And it was, okay. You know, I mean, before that, I mean, it was more like a Fellini movie at CBGB because everybody had dark glasses on and nobody barely clapped or did anything after anybody played. It was kind of, you know, trying to outcool each other. And then it was like, ah, it's like, who are these thugs and hooligans who <laughs> turned up here? You know? So it was, it, 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 yes, it, it was uh, very, very different. But yes, it was absolutely exciting. It was incredible. And it all happened in a small part of town, too. Mm-hmm. Um, on on the east side of New York, because everybody lived relatively close. I mean, the Blondie Loft was just a few blocks away from um, CBGB. The Ramones lived a block away or around the corner, and Talking Heads were not too far. And you'd run into everybody, you know, on Second Avenue and St. Mark's Place and all that. So, yeah, it was it was incredible. It was you know, it's nothing like that now. I mean, um, it's there's really no no evidence of that. Although I have to say, when I was last there, I did. You know, as one does, it did walk through the old neighborhood. And um, the only thing that remained untouched, everything else is unrecognizable. It's all done up fancy, you know, hotels and cafes where, you know, the people who made the place could never have gone into ever, not even to use the loo. And uh, the one place that's not over uh, done up is where the Blondie Loft was. It still has all graffiti on the door and it's still like, you know, this dump. <laughs> so I thought that was, I thought that was apt. You know, that was, that was good. So any case. Which street was that? Oh, uh, that was the Bowery. Yeah, Bowery, uh, south, south of Houston, 266 Bowery. So, I mean, everyone's going to go there and I hope, you know, please, I hope the people who live there, they're not, they're not bothered. <laughs> people want to go and you know, bang on the door or something like that. <laughs> I was actually in the Lower East Side when they were dismantling all right, all right, all right. Uh, CBGB, um, redeveloping the building. I'm not quite sure what the, what's there now, but um, I think the entire interior got shipped out to San Diego or something. Yeah, it's a club somewhere. I mean, there's a clothes, overpriced clothes store there now that has all the stuff that it wasn't about, like, you know, neon and guitars and motorcycles, you know, all the kind of stuff that if you're on Rodeo Drive or anywhere else, you know, um, Regent Street, you'd walk into, it'd just be some clothes shop, you know. But it's like, all, all this stuff is like, I don't know, you know, you, you, you can't go home again. It's just not there anymore. 
for sure. I love the Aurist. I love that line though that uh, clapping was frowned upon. <laughs> <laughs> so sort of a, any any sort of display of uh, of enthusiasm or emotion was. Uh, Greeted with no, friends. So, oh, oh, it was so, so yeah. cool. It was so cool. You had to be no, cool. It was, it was a total dominance kind of thing. You couldn't, you couldn't, you know, give in an inch. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Well, listen, we're supposed to be talking about CC Lethbridge. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Uh, but I, I've got a sort of segue from uh, these tales of the post-punk era into uh, Lethbridge because the uh, the person that I first heard about Lethbridge through was Julian Cope, as in Teardrop Explodes, etc. And uh, Julian Cope himself, of course, massively got into archaeology, prehistoric archaeology, wrote two books about it, great books, actually. And he talked about Lethbridge, both as an archaeologist and as a sort of, uh, you know, a centre of those Earth Mysteries uh, movement. But why don't you, for anybody who's not heard of him, which is most of us, I think, give us a sort of brief bio. Well, uh, T.C. Lethbridge was a Cambridge um, archaeologist. And um, for many years, he was um, um, the curator at um, Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology and, at, at Cambridge. And um, it was a post that he, he wasn't paid for. It was voluntary. He came from a, a well-off family. And uh, he had a you know unconventional style and, and approach, very personal approach to archaeology. And uh, later years, though, um, after he retired in the late fifties, um, he started writing a series of books about the paranormal. And he's most known today, if he's known at all, as as you say, for his work with pendulums, which came out of his work with dowsing. And you know, dowsing is when you use a dowsing rod, or you can use like a, 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 a stick or a branch or something, and you detect water. Um, you can do the same thing with the pendulum, you know, which uh, some, some kind of bob at the end and uh, at the end of a string. Um, but although you know, many people recognize, okay, you douse for water, and this is maybe some kind of natural talent or something like that. But it's um, you can douse with just practically anything, at least according to many reports. Um, but uh, and and Lethbridge just started a series of experiments, um, and he expanded it into a whole kind of system of um, different levels and dimensions of reality, different different um, kinds of time. Um, and he also he had he had, he had he wrote these very they're fun to read because they're short, and he has a very breezy, casual kind of style. And this was something um, I suspect he also had when he was at Cambridge, and it didn't serve him in good stead with you know many of the of the more orthodox dons there. But I, I should say, uh, just, just a strange segue um, from what we just were talking about is um, uh, I actually got thrown out of David Bowie's loft once in Manhattan in 1980 because of something about Lethbridge, um, which I only realized after the fact it was about Lethbridge. But I'll, I'll tell you, it's a very short story. Um, I guess I got thrown out, but <laughs> I, I, I was... I, I had met Bowie a couple times already, and because uh, the first Blondie tour, we um, we opened for Iggy Pop, and he was playing in Iggy's band, and on a couple of occasions. So, um, for some, I, I just got invited. Bowie was playing in Iggy Pop's band. Yeah, he played incognito. He was playing keyboards. Um, and uh, this was '77. So, uh, and uh, and he drove to every gig. He didn't fly. So the car that he is in, the man who fell to earth, was driving him from gig to gig. Um, but any case, this is 1980, a few years later, and I got invited to some, you know, do at his, his loft in midtown Manhattan, so I was there, and he was holding court and so on. And there was 
kind of a lull in the conversation. And I suspect that uh, they had been talking about the occult because he was, he was into it. He read lots of stuff like that. And so somebody said, uh, oh, Gary knows about the occult because he reads Colin Wilson. And Colin Wilson is you know, the great British writer, a, a big influence on my life and work. And I've also written a book about him. And it was also through Wilson that I came to know of Lethbridge's work because he writes at length about Lethbridge in a book called Mysteries that came out in 1978. And I, I, had, I had read that and... Um, and um, so I'm at this party and someone says, oh, Gary knows about the occult because he reads Colin Wilson. And, and Bowie says, Colin Wilson, yes, he traces pentagrams on the doors of people's houses and he, he heads a, a coven in Cornwall. And I hadn't met Wilson by then, but I'd certainly read if. Bit. And I said, I, I, just, I don't think he does that, no. And then uh, uh, something about, you know, gets the ectoplasm from Nazis. And Bowie was really going off on, on a tangent about this kind of thing. And I just said, well, David, you know, um, I, I don't think he actually does that. Oh, yes, he does. No, I don't think he does. And I, you know, had the temerity to kind of, you know, tell him basically in the kindest way possible that he didn't know what he was talking about. And um, Bowie had these two um, female bodyguards at the time. They're like Thumper and Bambi from one of the, I think, one of the, one of the last <laughs> Sean Connery Bond films. Um, I, 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 don't, I forget which one it is exactly. But uh, any case, um, they come over to me and they say, David's very tired. We, we think it's time. We think it's time you went home. <laughs> so how Lethbridge figures into this is that I later realized that the references Bowie was making was actually to... What, something Wilson had written about Lethbridge in the beginning of this book, Mysteries. Because um, the, the first few chapters, is it's basically a small book about Lethbridge. And the first chapter is about Lethbridge living in Devon, um, uh, in this uh, whole house in Branscombe. And um, he realizes that his neighbor is a witch. This, this um, elderly, you know, eccentric um, uh, lady is a witch. And how he realizes that is that she, she teaches, um, they get into a conversation and she somehow teaches him how to make pentagrams um, as a kind of protection. She says something like, oh, I've come by, she, 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 she astral travels or something like that and says, I've come by your house and I see you don't have any protection. You know, if you want to protect yourself from da da da, you need to do this. And Lethbridge was, you know, very empirical, experimental and he's, okay, I'll try anything. Let's see, let's see what happens. And so he somehow taught himself how to visualize, and it's very easy to do, visualize pentagrams, you know, and sort of saw them at the cardinal points around his bed or something like that. And um, this, and this is, Wilson starts out this book, Mysteries. So I assume now that Bowie in, had, had somehow blended the two things together, that Wilson's account of this witch teaching Lethbridge how to draw the pentagrams turned into Wilson making pentagrams around people's houses in Cornwall and having a coven. I mean, his life should be so exciting because he mostly, he, he mostly <laughs> just lived and wrote all the time. But uh, yeah, so there's, there's a crossover into... Um, but yeah, that, that's how I first came to know Lethbridge was that from, from reading this book, Mysteries. But I think listeners are going to want to know if there's a happy ending to your Bowie story. Did you uh, kiss and make up? Uh... I, I I don't I don't think I've talked to him since. I and mean, sadly, it's a, it's it's a, it's it's past. But um, I, I you know uh, no, it's it's one of those um, strange uh, claims to fame, you know. So yeah. Lethbridge, I mean, he's a little bit like you, Gary. I mean, he he wrote a lot of books, and I feel that we're sort of uh, circling him a bit, like like a, a, 
a pendulum sort of swinging around the subject, as it were, before we uh, centre in on it. So, as you said, he had this role at Cambridge as the keeper of Anglo-Saxon antiquities, an honorary role. He didn't need it for the money. And um, in fact, I've got a friend, actually, who's the keeper of medicine at the Science Museum. Uh, sort of interesting position to hold. And, uh, uh, and of course, he's an archaeologist, but he's never a straightforward standard academic by the book archaeologist he's always uh, moving to some degree on his own current acting out of intuition uh, off the page as it were in the field uh, and of course he starts to excite quite a bit of controversy with some of the discoveries that he says he's made well there's quite a few things i mean uh, uh, even the paranormal stuff started early on he tells a story about um coming across a ghost um in one of his friend's chambers um he was leaving his, his friend's chamber and some he saw some walk, someone walk in and he was surprised that he was getting another visitor and the next day or whatever he said oh you know i bumped into your friend you know who was that and he said I, I don't know who you're talking about and then he realized that the fellow was all dressed out in some kind of hunting kit or something and then he has the story of the ghoul, the ghoul on the staircase, which was a strange kind of presence um, that inhabited a staircase in one of the chorister schools. And um, he, uh, he, again, left, this is like 1922, 24, something like that. So he, he's in his early 20s, you know. Um, and um, he, um, he sees uh, one of the masters, headmasters, and the master's all depressed. And he said, oh, the ghoul is on the stair again. And and so being um, you know uh, uh, a very brave young uh, student there, he and a friend went to confront it, and they talk about sort of walking up the stairs, and and this this later became something you know thirty years later when when he had left um, Cambridge's was and down in Devon that he started to work on again. But I I, I guess the thing about his archaeological career is that he sort of had his own. Um, uh, way of doing things, and I, I, I get the impression, like I said, it was uh, sort of, um, how, how do you even say it? I want to say breezy, but that, 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 that may give the impression of being kind of um, irresponsible and, and, and not, um, you know, uh, serious. Now, I don't think that's the case, but I, I, I think he was like Wittgenstein in, in the sense that Wittgenstein hated Cambridge, um, and he hated all the kind of stuffiness, you know, the high, high tea, whatever it is, um, high table and, you know, um, everything being very buttoned down and all that. And um, um, I'm trying to think the dates because I wonder if they, they would have, I mean, he would have been a student. I mean, obviously, Wittgenstein would have been, you know, uh, teaching or whatever, but uh, they probably don't cross at that time. But it was a similar kind of sense where they didn't really fit in, you know, to like what was like kind of the orthodox way of doing things there. Do you think those um, early paranormal experiences with ghosts and ghouls, you know, which if you had those as a young person, they would sort of materially influence you. So do you think that background of something other was affecting the way that he came to archaeology? So which, of course, those kind of experiences, I imagine, wouldn't have been met with much uh, welcome at Cambridge, where they may be regarded with derision or cynicism. But if he's actually had them and, uh, mm. and they, they're, they're real to him, mm. then it's going to affect the way he goes about well, things. Uh, and so, of course, when he gets in the field, he starts to work in this kind of intuitive way, which is always would be regarded as being unorthodox, right? No, but that's the best archaeologists are the ones who do that. Schliemann and Arthur Evans, um, you know, they know ex somehow some weird way they know exactly where to go and i guess that's the that 
the thing that finally made him disgusted with um, Cambridge was, um, you know, years later when he, well, he he discovered uh, the Wandlebury um, giant, and um, you know he went, uh, to, uh, you know, it's 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 like the giant at Stern Abbas or the great horse of uh, Uffington. It's this fantastic um, carving in, into a hillside. And um, Lethbridge believed there was one. There was a legend about it being there, and he had heard the legends. And he took these legends seriously in the sense that, uh, um, yes, you can scoff, but um, there is bound to be some element of truth uh, to, to start it in the first place. Uh, and things grow and so on and so on. So but by the time he started hearing about the legend of uh, there was like a, a golden chariot, and um, a great horse and um, other figures uh, and legends and stories and fables about this. By the time he had heard this, it opened a lot of different stuff. Had, 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 a lot of stuff had accreted around the original kind of nut of what was actually there. But he, he believed that there was something there. And he went and to his satisfaction, he, he found it. You know, he famously took this, this kind of steel spike or a pike and, and, you know, shoved it through the turf and he... he his argument was that um, the turf would be deeper where the carving was simply, you know, because it carved out and the turf had to grow, you know, uh, as much to fill up the hole of the carving and then then some. And so he went around doing that and, um, you know, he believed that he had, but this was completely contentious and, um, you know, he, he was uh, attacked and criticized by his peers and so on. And, I mean, the two... Um, well, I mean, genius is the last place I would say <laughs> to go is, is in a university, especially these these days. I'm sure it was bad back then, but I would say these days it's um, you know, of course, that's why I stay out of them myself. But um, no, but I uh, <laughs> so yeah. but he, he he so he gets out on the hillside. He's got this. He's drawing on mythology. He's drawing on his kind of feelings, on his instincts. He takes his pike, his metal thing out there, and he, it's a little bit like, well, obviously, dowsing and pendulums became a big thing for him later. So he's he's responding to something in the earth, and he pricks out this shape, peels back the turf, reveals this figure, or was it figure? It's three. It's three figures. There's there's a yeah. there's an earth mother, um, a kind of uh, sun god, and there's a kind of another another figure. I think is a sort of moon god or something. I'm, I may be mixing them up. But. but he's immediately accused by the academic orthodoxy, the archaeological academic orthodoxy, of kind of making this up that he's kind of drawn them on the hillside that they're not really there, uh, and all this stuff is kind of nonsense, really. But in other quarters. Um, his approach and his discoveries are received very warmly, actually. Isn't that right? The thing about Lethbridge is he anticipated quite a, quite a few things that later became very big after his death, like the Earth Mysteries thing. I mean, he just he died just mm. on the cusp of that. Uh, John Michel's book, um, The View Over Atlantis, had just come out in 1969. And it was just, you know, the whole ley line thing was just kind of taking off when... Um, Lethbridge did in 19, uh, died in 1971. And he doesn't really talk about ley lines, but he certainly talks about earth mysteries and he certainly talks about megaliths and standing stones and all of that sort of thing. Um, but yes, and he also took seriously, this was the other you know, bad mark against him, was that he was friends with Margaret Murray, um, the great, um, well, she started out as an Egyptologist. She was a student of Flinders Petrie. Um, and who's the great Egyptologist, and then from that she um, went on to study uh, witchcraft. And she wrote the famous book, uh, Witch Cult in Western Europe, 
which argued that basically witchcraft, Wicca, is, is witchcraft is, is the vestigial remains of this ancient pagan pre-Christian fertility uh, religion. Uh, it's called Wicca, and it's been handed down. You know, it sort of, you know, saying counterculture. You could say there's a kind of counter. I mean, this is they didn't call it that, but you know, some people. Could, oh yes, here's this counter matriarchal or feminine, or it's not patriarchal, it's not male and logical, it's the solar, it's the lunar kind of tradition. So, um, going back, you know, far uh, earlier than Christianity, and so on, and so on. And um, by the time his work on Gog and Magog in the book in which he talks about the Wandelberry giant that comes out in the sort of mid fifties. Her, her prestige has dimmed quite a bit and she's not taken seriously anymore. Um, but she, you know, she gives her imprimatur to his work and, uh, he's also in that camp and he's becomes fascinated with the pre Christian, um, pagan gods of ancient Britain. And, and this one thing leads to the other. And I think the thing about Lethbridge is too, is that it's sort of, he does kind of follow the leads. It's not like he has a theory and then he wants to establish that and, you know, fight that corner. It's like, oh, let's see where this goes. Let's see where that goes. And along the way, he's always saying, you know, I could be perfectly wrong here. I'm, 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 the, least, I'm the last qualified person to do this. But in any case, let's see what happens. And you don't have to agree with him, but he certainly opens up, you know, avenues of, of thought. And so, he, yeah, he was, he was sort of presaging the whole Earth Mysteries thing, which would take over in uh, 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 certainly by the mid-70s. So he becomes completely disenchanted with life at Cambridge and is in the fortunate position of having enough uh, money, independently wealthy, to leave it all behind. Um, he doesn't leave archaeology behind, does he? But he, but, but he becomes sort of, well, Lethbridge too, you know, sort of steps into this role as writer about the paranormal and investigator, I suppose. He was like a kind of writer and investigator. Sort of parapsychologist, I guess. Although, again, he, he probably wouldn't have called himself that. I mean, he talks about the odd. And this is the general kind of... Or, you know, what... Uh, if, if people know who Charles Fort is. Uh, you know, uh, Charles Fort... Uh, Fortean, yeah. Char yeah, yeah, 14, yeah, Char yeah. You know, Charles Fort um, uh, wrote... I mean, he's probably more known than Lethbridge these days, but in the early 20th century, 1920s, uh, he wrote these huge, unreadable books about all these strange things that happened. He haunted the libraries of New York and London. And I mean, there's a plaque for him down uh, in, in sort of uh, Bloomsbury or just, just down the street from the British Library. Um, and he um, found all these things and it's sort of like, ah, explain that, you know, reigns of fishes and, you know, you know, flying cities and all this kind of stuff. So Lethbridge isn't quite out that weird, but it, it, he is kind of tra trailing these clues that he finds and one thing leads to another. And he, he basically finds out that he can douse. And this becomes a fascinating thing for him. And then he learns, again, you could do it with the pendulum. And the thing with the pendulum, you can even get more more precision uh, to a certain degree. And I mean, this is this is what happens. And he starts um, just just purely experimentally, wanting to you know see if this works. And um, long story short, he comes to his kind of first scientific uh, conclusion or fact about this new world that he's um, uh, exploring. You know, through, through the pendulum, uh, is that. Um, Everything has its own rate, and the rate is the length of, of the string holding, you know, the bob of the pendulum. So, you know, you have something, whatever it is at the bottom, and, you know, 
uh, and you've got a string somehow attached to it. And most people just use um, a, a short kind of pendulum. I mean, I, I did this ages ago. I mean, when I was first reading Lith, which I was trying all this kind of stuff. But you use a short kind of pendulum and you can, um, you know, it sort of just swings back and forth. But then when it reacts in a certain way, responds to whatever you're looking for or a question you ask or something, it'll start to turn, it'll start to gyrate in, in a circular kind of motion. And what Lethbridge was discovering was that different substances, um, the pendulum would go into the gyrating, you know, circular motion at different lengths of the, of the string. And he also found that the other, the other deciding factor, so you have the length of the string, the other deciding factor is the number of the rotations, the number of the, gyrate, the gyrations. And through those two, two coordinates, he was able to map out a whole kind of system of different substances, but not only, you know, thing, uh, you know, substances like iron or he's like, he searches for silver or he searches for lead. I mean, he, you know, he's an archeologist. Um, so he's always finding things in the soil. You know, if he's digging up things, he finds some old pottery or something like that. And a pendulum would be like, this would be like the magic bullet to mix metaphors for the, an archaeologist because one thing an archaeologist would really like to have is x-ray vision. You can just like look through the soil and see if anything's there. Otherwise, I'm going to be digging here for hours and there's nothing. Um, but Pen, uh, Lethbridge, what he discovered was that he, was, he would be able to have the pendulum, you know, at, at the length um, of whatever he was looking for. So it was a piece of silver or lead or, you know, gold or whatever, and then in one hand, and then he would, he would um, move his, you know, p pointer uh, out across the field. And whenever his finger pointed at the substance he was looking for, the pendulum would sort this, do this kind of thing. And he said that the pendulum acts just like um, an indicator on, on, on some kind of meter. It has no power itself. The power is somehow the human mind. Our, our mind somehow has this ability to locate these things. And not only substances, and this is a strange thing too, because it would also react to abstract ideas. It would react to anger, love, hate. All of these notions had their own rate and they were connected. And he came to see that there were all these correspondences. And in his own way, he kind of rediscovered a basic um, theme of the hermetic you know, tradition I was talking about, this is a notion of correspondences, that things like things somehow are connected to each other. And, uh, you know, this would be through analogy or metaphor. We, we consider this a kind of poetry, you know, but they actually, um, in terms of these vibrations, uh, you know, this, uh, the rotations of the pendulum, all these things, would, so like the color black and death and cold and sleep would have similar uh, rates. And this is very much along the lines of the whole Hermetic tradition or the Kabbalistic tradition, where you have certain colors and, and uh, sounds and plants and minerals and, you know, planets all are connected in some kind of strange way, which, you know, modern rational science says this is all rubbish. This is just, you know, kind of analogical thinking, you know, but things aren't really connected. They're connected by cause and effect. They're not connected by similarity. But no, this tradition says no. And Lethbridge believed that he had found a scientific basis for that. So um, if, if you held the, the pendulum over something that was, you know, black or something that was dead or someone that was asleep or, it, uh, or something that was cold, um, it would react at the same 
length of the string, the same, you know, so um, at 40, whatever it is, right? And then each of those things would have its own gyration. So they, they would, you could differentiate between them through the number of times the pendulum swung in a circle, but the length of the string at which it would react at all would be the same. And so just for him, and he tested it, and, he t and his wife tested it, and, and others as well. And um, it's, for him, it was kind of mapping out the radiations. And um, what he's saying is that somehow our own, I should say, he, he talks about a kind of cone of um, radiation coming around each object, each thing. So it, whatever it is, each thing has a kind of, we can't perceive it with our senses. It's, it's, it's on another level of reality. We can't, we can't see it or taste it or touch it, something like that. But some part of our mind is able to react to it or is in reaction with it already. And the pendulum acts as a kind of meter. Um, so because some, for some reason, the conscious me who wants this information can't just go to the superconscious me and say, hey, what is that? It won't, it won't just come that way. You have to go through a kind of relay, which is sort of some other medium. The medium is, it could be the dowsing rod. It could be the pendulum. Um, other, you know, there's, there's other, I mean, a, a related kind of phenomenon um, is uh, what's called psychometry, which is um, we people can tell something about the past of, of an object or um, some substance, or it could be wrapped in something, they don't know what it is, and they can, you know, hold it, and then it can get images of something, and then you find out, oh, this is exactly what it was. So if you, you know, someone, you didn't know what it was, volcanic glass or something, then, oh, I've seen eruptions and, you know, lava and so on. Oh, my God, it's, it's, that's what it is. So a similar kind of thing. So the idea is that um, rather than the subconscious, unconscious Freudian basement, um, there's a superconscious, you know, a, you know, we're in the middle, you know, we're, 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 we're like on the ground floor, there's the basement, and then there's the, I want to say the attic, but the attic, it's not dusty, it's actually much better, it's like a huge pent, penthouse up there, open to the sky, and up there, they ha it has all this information, but we in the middle can't get it directly, so somehow the pendulum works uh, as an indicator of that. And he was mapping the territory then, mm. wasn't he? He was mm. kind of developing this system, which he was using himself because he's down, by this time he's down in Devon, he's married, he's, you know, he's, he's, he can afford mm. to live in a rather nice house in Branscombe, mm. and he's investigating the local landscape. But wherever he went, he was investigating. He was always remaining the amateur archaeologist, digging things up, and he became very... Well, I suppose he always was, but he, he investigated stone circles and prehistoric monuments, and didn't he start, didn't he start to develop theories about them using oh, the system? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, he was one of the ones to... Um, before... Well, again, one thing about Lethbridge is he, he didn't read other people's books, so he wasn't aware of a lot of stuff that was happening. That's what makes it also interesting, too, because he's discovering these things just as many ways just before they become really big or at the same time. So one of the things that he's talking about in a book called Legends of the Sons of God is the whole idea of ancient aliens, the whole idea that at some time in the human past, the prehistoric past, um, aliens, extraterrestrials, beings from another dimension or whatever, people, not us, came and um, either mated or genetically, you know, experimented with uh, the primates that were here or the, you know, the early humans that were here and somehow gave a kickstart to human evolution. And with the, um, the megaliths and the standing stones, um, he believed that, uh, I mean, he, he accepted the idea that they were astronomical. This was something that was, you know, Gerald Hawkins was talking about this, Alexander Tom, again, this is part of the Earth Mysteries thing. 
But he took the next step, too, that people like Jean-Michel will be talking about in um, uh, uh, View Over Atlantis, that um, these ley lines or these, you know, earthworks are all connected, that they're not only uh, markers, even though Lethbridge said, oh, they, they, these things can't be seen from the sea, but they can be seen from up above. Perhaps they're, you know, landmarks to, for, you know, saucers or whatever to land. But also they somehow were able to contain the kind of um, power that uh, he, he came to know through his experiments with the paranormal. Because we talked about earlier his, his, his experience with the ghost and the ghoul. And through the, this was something else that he was able to kind of um, discover in the same way he was working with the pendulum. And he had this idea that um, you know, ghosts were sort of tape recordings in a way. Uh, strong emotions could impress themselves on, you know, the surrounding. Again, it's a kind of variant in psychometry, and the stone tape theory. Yeah, and then the other thing, uh, and the um, and and in the case of a ghost, it's actually you can actually see the the person who is there. They're they're like a television recording. The ghoul is more just like a, a bad feeling. It's kind of like a psychic smell, you know, that 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 inhabits a kind of field. And he he's talking in terms of electrical and magnetic fields. He's in some ways. This is the medium for these kind of phenomena to happen. But he's also interested in things like poltergeists and things of that sort. And that's a much more active, you know, um, explosive kind of power where, you know, telekinesis, psychokinesis, things are thrown across the the room and things like that. Um, And he believes that ancient times, and this is also part of this this notion of this ancient, um, you know, uh, pre-Christian religion that he associates with with witchcraft, um, the stones were somehow able to um, they could be charged with this kind of psychic energy or this bioelectrical energy he talks about. And the witches or whoever, the, the back in the day, they have raves at the stones and they just run around the stones a lot and generate a lot of this energy and the energy would go into the stones because he himself, when he was dowsing or when he was using pendulum, and he, I think it's at the Merry Maidens or somewhere else where he puts his hand on one of the stones, he feels this tingling. You know, he feels this kind of vibration. And um, he felt, well, why not? Could it be the case that somehow the energy that poltergeists use, other kind of psychic energy, can be stored in these stones? And that, that would be a way, not only the physical marker um, for the chips to, you know, see, they could somehow hone in on, on it in some kind of psychic way. So, and again, these are a lot of ideas he kind of throws off. I mean... I mean, at the same time that he was writing this book that nobody read at the time, you know, Eric von Däniken, you know, the, the Swiss um, uh, uh, guy who wrote, you know, Chariots of the uh, Gods and tons of other books, uh, all about ancient aliens. I mean, the books are horribly written. They're full of mistakes. But, he, you know, he has this insistent, you know, table-thumping kind of style. And he went on to make millions millions of dollars. I don't, I don't know if he's still alive these days or not. But, um, I mean, Lethbridge almost destroyed his book when he heard about Daniken because he thought, oh, he had, you know, uh, you know beaten him uh, to the punch. And, um, and um, he, uh, in the end, said no. Uh, he decided not to, and, and he published it. But, again, he was doing this stuff just before, you know, it became really, really widely popular. Lethbridge um, speculated that the stone circles, the megaliths, could be um, kind of batteries, you know, in a way to they could they could house this this bioelectric or psychic energy that would be given off by the people dancing or you know a variety of different rituals and things like that. And again, he likens it onto like acupuncture, and this is something that um, Jean Michel would would sort of say on his book as well. So um, I mean, it's um, 
It's interesting because, I mean, Michelle got kind of got picked up, you know, obviously got picked up by the counterculture. You talk about, I mean, he put Glastonbury on the map um, and, uh, you know, he was friends with the Stones and they used to go ley line hunting and looking for UFOs and things like that. And um, although I don't know if Lethbridge would have, you know, he was, you know, quite happy just to stay, you know, at home down in Devon. So I think he was a bit, I think he stayed at Cambridge Dawn to that, to that degree. I don't think he would have been picked up by the counterculture. That's interesting because uh, some of the most recent theories about big monuments like Stonehenge and Avebury, the prehistoric circles, um, share some of that. Um, there's the Australian Dr. Lynn Kelly. She has talked about them in terms of uh, memory repositories and also based on her work with Aboriginal uh, tribes in Australia, um, that the actual ditches themselves were these sort of places for celebration and big events using singing and that there is something in the architecture of the ditch which can reinforce those that sonic energy in a way that kind of brings all sorts of other things into play. So he was anticipating that, and um, it's a bit of a shame that he hasn't really been credited with more of his ideas than he has at the moment. Um, who was it who has sort of kept him alive, you know, in our memory? Um, Colin Wilson, who did a lot to, you know... Um, introduce Lethbridge to people. He himself, um, well, one of the reasons why he wrote, you know, several chapters about him in this book, Mysteries, was that um, he came to, he came, he came aware of his work after his big book, The Occult, that came out like 71, which was one of the big books to, you know, big bestsellers in the occult boom then. And he name checks one of uh, Lethbridge's books in there. But subsequent to that, he read the other ones and he realized, you know, he was brilliant and all that. Um, so, um, I mean, one of the, yeah, he, he, didn't, he didn't really read any. I mean, uh, he, he, I mean, this occasional reference to Jung or something like that, but he doesn't really, it's, and that's an interesting thing where the same, you know, the same idea is happening around the same time, um, this kind of non-locality. Um, I mean, the, peop, uh, the book in the early 60s um, called The Morning Magicians, I think it was The Dawn of Magic here, Powell's and Berger, they're, the, they're one of the first ones to talk about the ancient aliens kind of thing. And the, Arthur C. Clarke, he has a short story, The Sentinel, and 2001 is based on that and all that. Um, but no, I mean, um, I, I, don't think, I don't think too many people read him. I, I, think, uh, I think his time in any kind of popular way was sort of, you know, late 70s, early 80s when the Earth Mysteries things was happening. Of course, when you asked me about this, I said, oh, a coincidence, because I've recently uh, written a bit about, about Lethbridge, but it was about his, like, one of the last things he wrote about was dreams. And um, he was working on a book about dreams um, towards the end of his life when he died. And heart, uh, he had a heart problem. And uh, again, this is a new area he was going into. Um, one of his pub his publisher asked him if he, would you be interested in book doing a book about dreams and at first he said well I don't think so I don't think I, I dream that much but then he just decided and um, he followed up uh, where uh, well a fellow in the in 1920s J W Dunn he wrote a book called Experiment with Time and um, well you you might remember about last year when I gave a talk at um, Brompton Cemetery I, I talked about this a bit and. Uh, the fundamental idea of this book was that um, Dunn realized that he, bits and pieces of the future were turning up in his dreams. And he kept recording them and noticing. And long story short, he, he came up with this 
very strange metaphysical idea about time and different levels of time to explain the fact that, you know, bits and pieces of the future were coming into his dreams. And he said, if, if you can prove this for yourself, all you have to do is write your dreams down and pay attention to what happens. And I, I did this. Uh, Lethbridge did it. And uh, that's and I've been recently writing a book about this. That's why he came into this. And it's a shame that he 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 died when he did. I mean, obviously, but still, because he didn't he didn't really get as far into um, this work as as he might have. But he, but even in the earlier work with the the pendulum, he 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 proposed that um, what he called the second whirl of the spiral, and he, he saw he sort of saw reality as this kind of spiral, and the level we're at of physical reality, and and you know physical things is is sort of the the first the first whirl, and then up above is as what he called this timeless realm, this realm where you know future and past and present are all you know. Uh, continuous at the same time, uh, and uh, it's a very strange world. But we, in our dreams, we kind of it, it enter this, um, you know, strange, timeless realm, and everything's a bit mixed up. And so we can have dream stuff from the past in it, and then you know, stuff in the future. But unless you really pay attention to the dreams and sift through them, we won't notice it. And um, most of the time, it's not, you know, oh, future dreams is usually some catastrophe or, you know, every now and then you, you can dream the winner of the Kentucky Derby or something like that. But most of them are, are pretty trivial. Um, the fact that they are precognitive is what makes them interesting. They're not usually about anything interesting themselves. But again, he applied the same kind of scientific, empirical, experimental method where he, he wrote them down. He had different theories about them. He, he described, he had a kind of dream... Um, uh, uh, kind of classification. I mean, one of the strange dreams he talks about is the backward dream. He, 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 he talks about it, his cat, seeing his cat walk into the, the their room backwards and he didn't know what it was. The kind of furry snake comes in first and then it seems it attaches some weird thing and it's like, oh no, it's the cat. <laughs> <laughs> so in some ways, I mean, I suppose that connects him with uh, like the Aboriginal culture of dream time, which is you know, very landscape-based as well, and precognition and narrative. For a contemporary reader, I mean, he wrote a lot of stuff, Gary. I mean, is he still worth reading? And if he is worth reading, where should somebody start if they wanted to delve into the world of T.C. Lethbridge? Yeah, I think he's still worth reading. Uh, I said it's, it's very casual style, and he has a good sense of humour too, and he's very disarming. Um, I mean, there is... Um, I don't know if it's still in print, but there's there was uh, the essential T.C. Lethbridge, which was um, a compilation of his work um, put together by um, a fellow named Tom Graves, who uh, worked with pendulums as well, and Janet Holt, and uh, Colin Wilson wrote a forward to that. Um, I don't know how many of his books are still in print. I mean, there was one called The Power of the Pendulum, which is one of the last things he did. This is the books about the dream. And... Um, but um, I mean, if you want, if you want to get a good over, I mean, in a way, I would say read Colin Wilson's um, book Mysteries, which is still in print. I mean, the first three chapters, and that'll give you a good overview. And then what he does is what Lethbridge didn't do. He connects Lethbridge's work with lots of other people. I mean, th this book came out in '78, so it's you know it's 40 years old or, or whatever. But still, it's still an exciting, thrilling book, and it's about the paranormal investigation that was going on at the time and consciousness exploration going on at the time. And Wilson is very good at, at linking up, you know, different areas and avenues of exploration and this sort of thing. So I, I would say there, but um, I mean, of his, of his own books, they're, oh, they're all very short, you know, they're only about a hundred pages. Um, and uh, there's one called um, 
The Monkey's Tale, which is about his, his, critic, his criticisms of Darwin, uh, Darwinian. Because the, the fundamentally for Lethbridge, he believes that um, the universe is meaningful. He believes there is some kind of pattern um, there's some kind of intelligence at work in it, so uh, he's at odds with you know the reigning um, reductionist view of the universe, which is absolutely meaningless. You know, 15 billion years ago, less than nothing exploded for no reason, and that's why we're having this we're having this conversation. So <laughs> he thought maybe otherwise, and again, um, it's presented in this kind of really kind of uh, friendly kind of way. Take it or leave it. You don't you know he's not trying to convince, but if you're interested, he'll he'll show you his ideas. So there you have it, the strange story, the strange life of T.C. Lethbridge, a lesser known but nevertheless fascinating character walking through the landscapes of the counterculture. But uh, that's for Lethbridge, uh, Gary. What about you? Where can people find you and all these 23 <laughs> books that you've, uh, you've been writing over the years? Uh, well, I'm, um, I have a blog. It's uh, just my name, garylockman.co.uk. I'm on Facebook and Twitter. There's lots of um, videos on YouTube and interviews and things like that. So I'm not that hard to find. And my books, I guess, are available at um, all local bookshops and uh, good online purveyors. I think we should get you back to talk about Colin Wilson. I'd love to do that. Uh, and perhaps, yeah, that'd be great, wouldn't it? And... Um, and perhaps also the darkening of the hippie dream. Mm. That's another one of your topics. Um, what are you working on next? Uh, well, I just I just um, putting the finishing touches to a book about precognitive dreams and synchronicities. Um, uh, the spur for that was that talk I gave last year. Because I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but um, after that talk, the next day, because at the end of the talk I said, look, if if you want to see if you have dreams of the future, all you have to do is just write down your dreams and pay attention, see what happens during the day. And the next day uh, on Twitter, someone had sent me a message and uh, had posted and she said, OMG, you're, it's true. And um, she said, I was at this, this great talk. And yeah, I wrote down my dreams and this is what happened. And um, she dreamt that she had picked a hedgehog up off the road and put it on the pavement, you know, to get it out of harm's way. And the first thing she saw in her Twitter feed was a post about how to protect hedgehogs. <laughs> Keep hedgehogs right, safe. There you go. So it's not exactly <laughs> it, but it's it's subject to what I call symbolic distortion because dreams speak in symbols, and but it's close enough. It's close enough. It's so. close enough. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm hoping that I'm going to have a precognitive dream about you joining us at uh, <laughs> London Month of the Dead later in the year. Uh, but thank you so much for that uh, meeting with CC Lethbridge, and of course. Um, walking us through your thoughts on the counterculture and telling us about your encounter with David Bowie and his bodyguards. That was good. So we will hope to have you back very soon, Gary. Thanks very much. Absolutely. Yeah, sounds great. Thank you, Gary. So there you have it. Another episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture with Gary Lackman and T.C. Lethbridge and Bowie and Blondie and hedgehog in there just at the end so thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed it and you can find out more about us at bureauoflostculture.com we'll be back next time with yet more tales from the counterculture i was am stephen coates see you hear you then <laughs> <laughs>